Father, you have said, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Lord, we want in our heart the highways to Zion to live and breathe. Zion is the place of your presence. It is the place where you dwell. And we know someday, Lord, that where you are now will one day be here. And we, Lord, want to live in the strength of that hope. So I pray in these moments that we have together that you would put away the things that are easily distract us, uh, things we're worried about or anxious about, that we would be able to be still and know that you are God and hear what you have to say. You've said this to the churches for generations, and here we are in the 21st century, another generation that you have chosen to live at this time, to hear once again these words of hope, these words about home. And I pray you'd help me to teach this in ways that is both accurate, humble, but passionate. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start with a question, and I want you to muse over it just for a second with me. And the question really is a choice. If you had the choice between two things, and there's no alternative, there's no door number three or choice number three, it's just a choice between one or two things, what would you choose? And the choice is this. Would you choose one day, one day that's filled with all of your favorite things? Favorite people, favorite food, favorite places. If you could pack it all into a 24-hour period, would you choose that one day? If you could only have one day to live. Or would you choose 10,000 days living in adversity, scraping and scratching to survive? That's the question. Would you choose one day full of the things you love? Or would you choose 10,000 days living in a ghetto. For me, that's a difficult question to answer, quite honestly, if you think about it. Because if you choose the one day that's packed with all of your favorite things, 24-hour period of time, and you knew you only had what day, what would you spend that 24 hours doing? I would be worried. I'd be looking at my watch. Only 12 hours left to go, right? Only two hours left to go. That is, I would be saddened by the finite 24-hour period of time, worried, anxious when it's going to be over. Like, that's the end of vacation, right? Uh, for me, the worst day of vacation is the last day of vacation, because you know, guess what? you got to go home. So that, would, that, 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 that um, limitation of time would totally, like, stain and sadden that 24-hour period of time. What would you choose? The one day packed with what you love, or 10,000 days living in relative misery? That is the quandary of quality of life versus quantity of life. Now, we talk a lot about quality of life, not so much about quantity of life. But you realize those two things seriously impact each other. That you might have a good quality of life in some areas, like the job might be going well, or your marriage might be fantastic, your kids are all doing perfect in school, and they love you, and they say happy things to you, and but then you find out you have three months left to live. And all of a sudden, the lack of quantity has a way of overshadowing the quality of life. And the same works in reverse, where the quality of life, that is the goodness of life, we know that quantity has to do with how much and quality has to do with how good. But where there is a decline in the quality of life, that is, it can get to a point of despair where people don't no longer want to live and they stop eating and drinking, 
and their quantity is diminished because of the lack of quality. Both those two things are supposed to go together. It's hard to have one, really, without the other. And my point is this, that I believe deep down what the human heart, every human heart wants is both of those things. That the, that the true place of joy is when there is a high quality of life and there is quantity uh, wedded together. And may I suggest that people all over the world are looking for just that. They just want both of those things to come back together. A high quality of life and quantity of life. We want a lot of days and we want good days. But we know from a Christian worldview, that is from the Bible itself, that like, there is no 10, like 1 out of 10, 10 being perfect. There's no 10 in terms of quality. And we all know we have a limited number of days for quality. And even what we do experience is there's always something going wrong right? 90% of your life is going good, and then 10%, whether it's at work or it's with your kids or it's with your transmission. It's like there's something that's, you know, some fly in the ointment. There's some flaw in the marble somewhere. So quality is never perfect. And we know that quantity, of course, life is a vapor. We have very little time left, just like this, and, and, and life is over. So like it or not, like the bad news of the Bible is that by the time you take your last breath, both categories of quantity and quality will come to zero. What I want to point out is that that is not the way that God set up the universe. Like, that is not how we were created. We were created with the perfection of quality and permanency of quantity. Like we read in the opening chapters of the Bible, just like what God has provided for us of flowing rivers and fruiting trees and wedded bliss and guiltless pleasures and joy. And the access to the tree of life, which in context meant it was possible for Adam and Eve to actually live forever in this perfect place. So there you have in the Garden of Eden, we have the highest quality with eternal quantity wedded together. Perfectly, And the best part, of course, was that Adam walked with God as a man walks with his friend in perfect fellowship. I can't even conceive of a world like that where dogs don't bite, bees don't sting, where wives don't nag their husbands and husbands don't bark at their wives. I can't, just can't even imagine that. The highest of all possible quality and eternal quantity. Every day, just as perfect as the next. No bad days, no off days, no rainy days and Mondays always get me down days. Like, perfect every day. I, I just can't even begin. I mean, when I have a perfect day, and rarely is there ever a perfect day, it's like one in every 10 years. I'm just like, oh, that was so wonderful. And then the next day, not a good day. That's life in this world, which brings us to the final picture of the Bible. We've looked at three major pictures that John has looked at with regards to the hope that's set before us. One is a brand new heaven and earth, a new creation. The second one was of a new temple or a new city of God that is just radiant. And this third one is a picture of a new garden. And it's a stroke of literary genius that, this, that the Holy Spirit over the course of 1,500 years ends the Bible where it began. It ends where it began, but only better, expanded, amplified, magnified, and eternal in duration. So I want to look with you at this final vision of 
the new garden, both what it is and also who's in it, and conclude with some application. But I want to start just with verses 1 and 2, but I want to rewind because really all five verses, their roots go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. This is a massive theme that builds in here. John speaks of its climactic realization. So I want to just kind of rewind with you, and I want you to pay attention to the verses that I use. I didn't use a ton, but I think it starts to fill out what's behind this vision and how magnificent it is. So I want to rewind to Genesis chapter 2. And you're going to notice a lot of the same terminologies used. We're familiar with these verses. The very opening scene where mankind is given a garden provided by God. He didn't build it. He didn't plant it. This is something God furnished. Verse 8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord, this is all the work of the Lord, um, a gift. And out of the ground, the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, that is beautiful, aesthetically beautiful, and good for food, that is not only is it nutritious, but it tastes good. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. Now, in this case, it seems like there's only one. And the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And then verse 10, the river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So here you have this river that's giving life to these fruiting trees and the tree of life. So you have a river and fruiting trees. That's how, that's, our, that, 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 that's the essence of home. God has set up a context in which there is perfect quality of life. And by the fact that there is a, a tree of life in the middle of the garden gives hope for eternal life. That is quantity of life. Of course, we know that Eden was lost. Um, sin infected it all. It all broke. Quality, quantity, it just broke. We have neither, at least not in the perfect sense. And quality of life and quantity of life were themselves separated. But God promised through the scripture that he'd do it again. That he'd do it again. He did so most clearly and explicitly through the prophet Ezekiel. who gave this vision, and you're going to hear Ezekiel's words in Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Now, just again, pay attention to the, to the verbiage. It's just the words of scripture and phrases of scripture are so important to just stop, slow, and take in. Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1, says, Then he, that is God, and he's speaking in symbolic language here too. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced the east. The water is flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. So here he sees this temple that he knew, and out of the temple flows this water, and he starts to measure it. At first, it's like only ankle deep, and then as he goes east, it's knee deep, and goes east farther, it's waist deep, and pretty soon, it's impassable. There's this massive flow of water proceeding from the presence of God, from the temple. And by the way, the Garden of Eden was the first sanctuary or temple, if you think about it, which explains why a lot of the Eden-type fruit and blossoms and flowers were etched into the temple in Jerusalem to remind them. Of Eden. It was the first place where God dwelt with man. 
So out of this temple, he sees, is flowing this mighty river, and it's flowing to the east. Now, anybody familiar with geography know what's east of Jerusalem and east of the old temple? Moonscape. That is, the Dead Sea's there, and it's appropriately, appropriately named because, guess what? Nothing lives in it. And nothing really lives around it either. It's just some, I mean, it hardly gets any rain. So it's, it's just this barren wilderness where things can't live unless you have a fountain or you have a spring like En Gedi. So he sees this, this river pouring out of the presence of God like Eden. And it's a full flow. And what is it doing? Let's check this out. Just, I love this stuff. Verse 9, it says, And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. This is life. This is animal life. This is animate life. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so that everything will live wherever the river goes. And not just in the waters, but you skip down to verse 12 and you realize that it's also above the waters, is verse 12, and on the banks, on both sides of the river, there grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit each, every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. This picture is this river as it goes out from the presence of the Lord is springing forth life. Life is bursting forth out of the moonscape desert. And it continues and continues and continues. And as it continues to expand, that's the vision of Ezekiel. This is Eden reborn. This is like the new Eden, or we might call it Eden 2.0. But keep in mind right here, it suggests that it will transform creation as we know it. Life, kingdom life, animal kingdom life, plant kingdom life. And he's not the only one to be given this, this, this oracle, this vision of the future. Prophet Zechariah as well writes, chapter 14, verse 7 says, And there shall be a unique day, I love that, unique, utterly unique, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at the evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out of, from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. That is, it'll provide water all the time, so things will live all the time. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. That is, his kingdom will rule forever and ever and ever. Okay, end of my Old Testament. I just want you to see, by the time we get to Revelation 22, this expectation of our ultimate and final hope of life, of the new Eden, a place where quality of life and quantity of life are brought together in perfect union forever and ever and ever is realized. So building on these texts, again, one of the favorite things about the book of Revelation is that it's packed with the Old Testament. We read our text. So we have, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. There it is. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. It's just like flowing out of Eden and feeding Eden and out of Jerusalem and going to the east and causing life to flourish in the dead valley. There's the river of life. And it's flowing, guess what, from the throne of God and from the Lamb. 
And through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. That's Zach Ezekiel explicit. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It's bringing all of that to a wonderful consummation. Eden 2.0, new Eden. A couple things to be drawn from our text, just so we're clear, before we look at who's in the garden, aside from us. One should be obvious that this is a work of the Lord. The simple fact that the river comes from the throne of God and from the Lamb, it's possible that this is a symbol for the Holy Spirit of God, and it probably is. I mean, it was the Spirit of God that hovered over the deep in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 and 3, 2 and 3 actually, and he created life as we know it. So it's possible that this river is, in fact, the Spirit of God going through the world and recreating everything. But the point is, this is from God. Like the future of our planet, the future of creation rests in the hands of God, not men. Very important. Like, God has called us, you and I, to be good stewards of this creation. We're to love it because God created it and God loves it. It's, it's still good, even though it's broken and it's under a curse. There are thorns and thistles on the ground because of the sin of mankind. But at the end of the day, we have to rent, recognize and come to grips with the fact that we, that though we're stewards of it, cannot save it, no matter what the conference of the peoples say. Ultimately, we look to God, not to man. So this is from the Lord. The Lord's going to do this. That's why it's sure and certain. We don't have to trust in, in legislation to pass to save the planet. God, at the end of the day, will do it. And don't mean anything underhanded by saying that. The second thing is not only is it from the Lord, but the sense of the river is, is that it gives like just life. And with Ezekiel in the background, I don't think it's beyond a, a stretch to say it means the return of the lives we know. Uh, maybe not in the same way or the same degree because this is going to be an Eden that is expanded and magnified and permanent. But if Ezekiel looks and sees the reanimation of, of, of animal life and plant life, then there's no reason to, th to suggest that that's not going to happen. God created us to be part of a home that's full of all kinds of variety and beauty and wonder and the platypus. I mean, duckbill platypus. Who, who, in, that was a joke that the Lord created that. Confuse us. Just to say, I'm going to create something that, that just totally fouls up all your categories. I don't know if that's going to come back or if we'll ever be able to pet the dodo bird. I don't know. The fact of the matter is, is this river of life just reanimates the whole creation. It's not us sitting in a church service for all eternity. Because that is a very small, narrow, and not to mention unwinsome view of the new creation. Well, if the, if the river is largely a symbol of God bringing everything back to life, resurrecting what he created the first time, only this is an expansion of it. And by the way, expansion, because, you know, um, that's not only kind of the sense of the context of Genesis, excuse me, uh, Revelation 21 or 22, but if you think back to the first mandate, Genesis 1. What did God command Adam to do? He commanded him to multiply and fill the earth. Implicit to that is the need to expand this little tiny garden. If you're going to fill the earth with people, the sense of it is you are going to also, had they not sinned, 
You're going to expand the garden, cultivate it, and care for it, and build this magnificent, wonderful society on planet Earth. So the, 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 the garden would have expanded to encircle the whole globe. Well, what the first Adam failed to do, Jesus, the last Adam, will do. He'll cover the earth as the waters cover the sea with his glory and with the people and a garden. And the third thing that P grabbed from this is, again, the duration. The tree of life is there. Again, a symbol, I think, in this text to talk about eternal life. But I just want you to notice something because this is like Eden expanded. You'll notice that the tree of life is on either side of the river, the tree with its 12 kinds of fruit. So you have a tree, singular, but it's on both sides of the river. Like, how does that happen? Does this root system go under the river? Except I think what's in view is that he's looking at the one tree as a collective of trees. Ezekiel would bear that out. Multiple trees. The idea is in the first creation, there was just one. But in the new creation, they line the river. Point being, eternal life abounds for all. Never an end to life as we know it. This is the, this is, this is the new Eden. Expanded, magnified, and eternal. This is where quality of life, quantity of life are united forever. But the best part is who's there. Not just us, but verses 3 through 5 focus on the presence of God himself. I wanted to throw a third word in here, but it wouldn't fit on one line. That is, the new, new Eden is where God personally, and I would add intimately and directly, lives with his people. Personally, intimately, and directly inhabited by God himself. This is, like I said, this is the best part. You could spend weeks on just certain phrases in these verses. It says, no longer will there be anything accursed, so the curse is gone. No more thorns or thistles to infect the ground. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. I want you to notice the intimacy words that are used. They will worship him. They love him so much they worship him. We won't tell ourselves we have to worship. We will spontaneously worship at all times because we won't be able to help ourselves. They will see his face. Face to face. And his name will be on their foreheads. That's intimacy. And the very end of verse 5, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, we worship right now what we do not see. Worship right now is very different from what it will be like in the new, 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 new Eve, uh, Eden. We worship by faith. Can't see God, can't touch God, can't feel God. We worship indirectly. We worship God through creation. We look at the creation. We're like, wow, that's amazing. So the God who created it must be amazing. So we worship indirectly by looking at creation. We worship indirectly by looking at this word that he's given us, special revelation. We come to it and we recognize that he's the author of it. And we read it and we're like, wow, God, you're awesome. We come to know him. But, and we relate to him indirectly through other means. But there's still the physical disconnect. There's still the fact that we are not physically present with him with God. 
And up to this point in history, no one has ever seen the face of God. I think that's one of the most remarkable phrases in all of the Bible. They will see his face. They will see his face. You know, Jesus taught us in the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18, he said this. He said, no one has ever seen God. No one. And the idea is except one person. The only God who is at the Father's side. Well, if there's any question as to whether Jesus is God, it should be settled right here in this one verse. The only God who is at the Father's side. That is God at the Father, God's side. He has made him known. Why? Because he sees him. He knows him fully, intimately, completely. So you, you understand, through all of history, no one gets to see the face of God. Only one deserved to see the face of God. Only one is capable of seeing the face of God, and that's the Son of God. But you get to the end of the Bible, and you realize you get to see his face. Jesus shares with us what he himself sees. I don't know how that works, to be honest with you. I just know that what's packed into that phrase, they shall see his face, cannot be described, imagined, or dreamed to see him. That'll be a totally different worship experience. I mean, if you're overwhelmed when you go and see the Pacific Ocean or you look out through a telescope and you see the deep, dark vastness of space, you're like, wow. Try and contemplate seeing the face of the one who created it all. That is nothing less than awesome in the truest sense of that word. They shall see his face. He will write this, his name on their forehead. That is not just a sign of ownership and protection and preservation as it was earlier in the book. In many respects, this is one of the highest honors you could ever experience, that God would place his sacred name on you. So interesting story. So we go to, over to Israel. I've tried to take all three of my kids because I wanted them to be exposed to the historical footing of the Bible. As you can see, the, see this city is actually here, right? The Bible is history. And my oldest son wanted to get a silver ring. And he wanted, the Jewish lady was asking what he wanted inscribed. And um, he said, I, I want the sacred name of Yahweh put on that ring. She said, I'm not doing it. You know why? Because you do a lot of profane things with that hand. You wash dishes with that hand. You go to the bathroom with that hand. We do not put the name of God on something that is profane or is used in profane things. That's how holy the sacred name of God is. God does not put his name on things that are not holy, that are not worthy. And here in this text, and his name written on you. That is the honor of the highest, highest dimensions. And then just a, a reflection on that last phrase, and, and he will, um, and they will reign forever and ever. That's a beautiful statement. Um, God's kingdom, God present here, you know, we, we face to face and all this stuff, but, and they will reign forever and ever. When we think of reign and rule, we think of, you know, Washington, D.C., or the Kremlin, or, you know, Sacramento. But a reign in the new creation is going to be very different. There is no sin. There is no curse. There is no corruption. 
like the whole legislative branch doesn't need it anymore. Like Department of Defense is, is completely uh, pointless. So what does it mean to rule and reign with him? Well, first you need to again recognize that this is the fulfillment of the first mandate. God told Adam to exercise dominion over the earth before there was ever sin. He was supposed to reign over it, he and his wife. And as they had kids, they were supposed to reign over the earth. What were they supposed to do? They were supposed to steward, care for, build society. All of that has to do with a benevolent ruling over God's creation, unlike anything we've ever seen. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that that kind of rule and reign includes a whole myriad of vocations. Like I said, not sitting in pews for all eternity. Worship, as we know it, includes everything in life. Our vocations, our parenting, our, our living, what we do with our hands. Like I said, it's not beyond the stretch of imagination to say that we're going to still write songs. That we're going to have a lot more to write about. Amen. Play instruments. Chris is still going to have a job when he gets into the new creation. I will not. You will not need preachers anymore. <laughs> will we till the soil without thorns or thistles? Like, I, I really do, and I think we were all made to love work, right? Work is a part of how we were created, to have purpose and meaningful work to do. It's, it's the sin and the curse of sin that, that messed everything up so that it's a labor and a toil and sometimes a headache to do work, which is why people retire. I'm done working. There it won't be like that. It won't be like that. Whatever you do, whether you paint or make music or you help to organize society, because all of that, I think, is implicit in a physical, spiritual being, all of us living on this planet together, you're going to love it. And you're going to love it every day because the quality of life and the quantity of life will be perfected and unified forever and ever. So can I just conclude with a couple thoughts of application? I've kind of like broke this down as best I could. It's like this is the new Eden filled with life, filled with eternal life, filled with God's own presence. But let me just reflect on two points that I think how it's supposed to function. That is, first, this, this vision of, of, our, of our future that God himself will guarantee and has already purchased through the blood of Christ uh, should purify our present living. Uh, the, the epistle of John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, talks about the purifying effect of hope. That when, 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 when you love this and you want this and you long for this and you're watchful for this and you're awake for this, it's going to um, break some of the bondage of things that we love here in the wrong way. Like I said at the beginning, I think everybody on planet Earth is looking for this concept of Eden. They might not stay, say it that way, but they're looking for quality of life and quantity of life. And it's easy, even for Christians, to think, and again, you wouldn't say this, but to think, ah, if only I get married, I'll experience Eden. That hasn't worked for anybody that I know. 
And marriage is a gift, and it's a wonderful gift. I, 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 there's other people who they wouldn't say this, but they think this and feel this. If only I can, and I'm not trying to hurt anybody. I'm trying to sober correct thinking. If only I could have a child, it would be eaten. Guess what? I don't know of anybody who's had children who have found Eden yet. And they are a gift from the Lord, and it hurts not to have them. You can think, young people, pie in the sky. If only I can find that one thing I'm supposed to do. Whatever that vocation out there, and when I find it, I'm going to find Eden. I haven't found a person yet who has any vocation who has found Eden. It can't be found. And when we're looking for it and created things, guess what we're doing? We're worshiping the creation, not the creator. Sin itself is an attempt to find Eden, if you think about it. A lot of the looking and searching and trying to find will a new sexual identity satisfy and be that Eden I'm looking for, and it won't. There's only one thing and only one person who can give it to us. It's, it's the Lord. It can't be purchased it can't be bought. It can't be married. It can't be given birth to. There's one thing that will satisfy, and that's where God is present in this hope called the New Eden. And you know what? I think it's interesting to, to consider the fact that, you know, when we talk about the death of Jesus, like I've said this before, we kind of think, well, he died to save me from my sin and give me forgiveness. And he did. Without that, we'd all perish. But what he purchased for us at the cross is so much bigger than that. He purchased for us an inheritance that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, we have already obtained it, spiritually speaking. It's already ours. We're just waiting for the final installment of this new creation. It's so much bigger than that. What Jesus purchased for us and gave us is beyond imagination. And I don't think it's, again, a stroke of literary genius on the part of the spirit who put this whole Bible together. Humanity was created in a garden. And after it fell, humanity was redeemed in a garden. Jesus was betrayed in a garden. We're told that his tomb was in a garden. So where he rose from the grave was in the garden. As if to say the only way back to the garden of God is through Christ. Who paid for it for you as a gracious gift. That's all we can do is embrace it as a gift. And that should have a purifying effect on your life to be able to Eden, where God is present, and I want God, or my addiction. Eden, addiction. And where this becomes more important, more powerful, there's a greater affection for it, guess what? This starts to lose its control. Or in the words of the hymn writer, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Earthly things become dim as God and our hope becomes bright. And the second thing is uh, just visions like this are meant to be studied, not just once. They're meant to be studied and broken down and meditated on so that it will increase your hope. It will feed your hope. Hope needs to be fed like you, you need to be fed. Hope's like a fire. You know, we know from building fires, you stick kindling in there, you stick wood in there, and then you continue to stick wood in there so that your fire grows. Hope and faith, and hope is just faith leaning forward, is we need to feed our hope. 
logs of truth, logs of this is where we're headed, thrown onto the fire so that we can keep the hope burning uh, hot and full. And it's like that, to me, one of the most vivid, vivid images of Hollywood is, is uh, Castaway, you know, or a guy named Chuck played by Tom Hanks. He's on a deserted island all by himself, and he's separated from the love of his life. He's played by Helen Hunt. Uh, Kelly, I think, is her name in the, in the movie. This is it. I know, dating myself. It feels like yesterday that movie came out, but it was a while ago. Um, and, and what did he do on the island? He just keeps looking at one thing over and over and over and over again. The only picture he has of the love of his life, Kelly, is in the cave with a flashlight. Keeps looking at it. That's what we have to do. Keep looking at hope. Let it feed in here and change you. It will change your, you from the inside out and how you see things, including those who are passing on in front of you. Like, where there is no burning hope, it's so easy to be so overwhelmed with grief that you can't even see straight. So we're in uh, kind of a season of death in my family. I had an aunt that passed away earlier this month, and she was critical to my, my faith. Um, and we found out this last week that my only uncle, who lives in Montana, uh, he's facing death too. My mom is having a tough time with both. Um, and by the way, I say this not to garner sympathy or to distract you from what I want to say, but to make the point. I know for a fact that both of these people, one who's already passed over the threshold and one who's about to, I know who they belong to. I know who they, I've seen their walk of life, their testimony of life. They lived as saints who trusted in Christ. I know that God has his, put his indelible name on their lives. So for me, I know where they are and where they're going. And one of my favorite things to say, maybe this is just me, but, you know, talking to somebody who's about to cross the threshold is I just say, I will see you again soon. I will see you again Soon. I mean, if life is a vapor, it's going to be very soon. But here's the thing. I want, I want to be really clear. I don't say that as a bit of wishful sentiment. We have, we'll often talk about those who have passed on with a, a sense of wishful sentiment, like, well, right now she's partying with her homies, or she's dancing on the streets at her golden with her angels, neither of which really have a solid foundation in Scripture, though nothing wrong with it. When I say, I, I will see you soon, I don't say that as a wishful sentiment. I say that as a statement of fact. Huge difference. It's a fact that we will see each other again. And what we'll do after that? There will be a party and be with the Lord. But we do not believe in wishful sentiment. We believe in a God who rose from the dead and a God who is going to recreate all things. So it is a statement of fact to say, I will see you, my brother in the Lord, again, soon, period, fact. And that allows me to live at peace with the fact that people pass on. Grief, yes, but peace, yes, too, because I know where they're at. So church, the point in all of this is to feast your heart on hope. Don't let this... You know, series in the book of Revelation be the end of it. It needs to be done all the time. We need to know what we're living for and feed those fires of hope all the time. Amen. Amen. Can I just, what, what, I need to say one more thing. 
if you don't know this hope, there's one thing that you need to do to be one of God's. Surrender your life in faith. Say, Jesus, I trust that you're the only one who can take me there. And if, and if, if that's you and they're like, I want to I do this. I want to trust him. I want him to be my Lord and King. Then just acknowledge that to him. Tell him that. Make that commitment of heart and then tell somebody about it. Because I'll tell you what, the best for us is yet to come. Lord, we thank you for your, your word. We thank you for the hope it inspires. Just ask that you would be gracious in our time to allow us the freedom to let some things go and, and really put all of our eggs in one basket, and that is in the coming of the kingdom. So uh, bless us as we close our service and worship.